Shelly Miscavige. She has not appeared in public since 2005. Where's Shelly and what happened? Where is Shelly? We're looking at like 17 years of a person just missing. Shelly Miscavige was given into the sole care of L. Ron Hubbard by her parents when she was 12. This is where Shelly is believed to be being held captive. Do you believe that Shelly Miscavige is a threat today? Oh, absolutely. She's seen it all. She's been by his side the whole time. Welcome back to the channel. I'm your host, Claire Headley, and this is my next episode of Where is Shelley Miscavige, in which I have been delving deep into the life of Shelley Miscavige by interviewing those who actually know her personally and have worked with her um, and will continue to shine a light on this topic since Shelly has not been seen in public for now 18 years. Um, my guest for today is the amazing Hannah Eltringham Whitfield. Welcome back, Hannah. <laughs> it's good to be back with you. Yes. So I know we are going to get back to your story, but for today's episode, I appreciate that you're willing to talk with me about your personal experiences with Shelley, as well as her sister Clarice, and then in later years, her mother, Flo Barnett. Yes. So where would you like to start? Probably just let's talk about how you first met Clarice and Shelley. Yeah, let's do that. That was on the ship, and then we can lead into their mother, Flo, later on. And I have to say, Shelley came on later. She came on a few years later. But I was very impressed with the messengers. They were dressed all in white, little white uniforms. And um, they were all courteous, respectful, very well behaved. Um, they never did anything <laughs> I know of that they weren't supposed to do. Um, and they were all minors? As far as I know. They were yeah. all minors. I don't know who was the appointed guardian for Clarice, for example. I have no idea. But Hubbard had written a flag order that specified they were to come. Those people coming on board with our parents had to have guardians on the ship. Yes. So clearly Clarice had a guardian. I don't know if it was Kimmer or maybe Kimmer Douglas, Duncan uh, Dunleavy or somebody else, but... She had her guardian. Yes. But uh, she, was, she was wonderful. She really came to me with a message from Hubbard. Usually it was Janice Gillum or Terry Gillum who came to me. But I was through the, through the, I walked through the ship frequently and was always seeing Clarice somewhere or another. And then when Shelley came on board about three years later, I noticed the same about Shelley. She was very quiet, almost, I thought, withdrawn. Yes. Um, didn't smile often, um, but very prompt, very polite, um, respectful. And even if the girls were sitting outside LRH's office, they had little chairs on which they sat to wait for him to call them. Hmm. The girls would be completely well-behaved. I mean, they were never throwing things and 
and giggling and stuff like that. They just didn't happen. So I was, I was impressed with them and um, more impressed with the messengers than I actually was with some of the ship's crew. <laughs> Interesting. Ship's <laughs> crew. Um, and again, I didn't have that much to do with them because I was usually approached by other messengers. But I've never forgotten those yeah. girls and then and others who acted as messengers. Yeah. So they made an impression. Yeah. Was it surprising to you how young they were? It was. Okay. And I was surprised, actually, that mothers and fathers would let their children come onto a ship. Yes. Um, that was registered in foreign countries. Yes. That uh, where they had maybe a guardian, but the guardian was, guardian was a full-time crew member as well. Right. Who didn't have that much time to run around and care for the child that they were guarding. <laughs> right. And it's not that the, um, the minors, the minors were on the same schedule as the adults, I'm presuming. Absolutely. Yeah. They were treated like adults. They had to behave like adults. Yes. And there was no schooling, no education, obviously. Oh, no, not at that time. Yeah. I think that came in maybe a bit later on, but no, there was no requirement that they finish their GEDs or, you know, whatever. No, right. there was no requirement. Yeah. Um, Hubbard actually had written a flag order sometime in that time period saying that children on board must be treated as adults. They must be given the respect of adults and treated as adults. And I thought, you know, that's a very steep learning curve. Right. <laughs> They're completely denied everything that normal children receive in those years before they turn 18 or 21. Yes. And, um, so these these kids were, they were exceptional. Wow. Interesting. And... um and so this was so what was this time period in which you had interactions with Shelley and Clarice for example so it was, I think you said starting in 1970 so how and when was, did this last until It lasted until we came ashore which would have been in 1975 Okay So and that was that was when originally to Daytona Yes first to okay. Daytona Yeah and we had some messengers around in Daytona. Hubbard was living in another location and had his messengers with him. And occasionally a messenger would come to where we were in the Neptune Hotel running the flag service organization, which was delivering all the auditing and training to people who came to flag. So came to the flagship. So occasionally the messenger would run up with Tony Dunleavy was our commanding officer, and they'd run up to him or to Gwen North, the chief officer, or to me, the supercargo. So occasionally one or another of the messengers came up. I don't again, I remember seeing Clarice and Shelley around, more so Clarice than Sherry, Shelley. Yeah. And again, more so Janice and Terry. Yes, uh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah, and what were your impressions of Clarice? So Clarice is, of course, Shelley's older sister. She's two years older. Yeah. What were your impressions of her? 
in her demeanor, uh, demeanor. Um, she was maybe not quite as as uh, reserved and timid as Shelley was. She was a little more outgoing, but she was also she was also a little sterner. Okay, she was a little. Um, what's the best way to describe it? Whereas Janice and Terry would sometimes come up and they'd be smiling and they'd be joking between the two of them or whatever as they delivered a message. Clarice was always very prompt, very much on the ball, very mm -hmm. delivered the message and waited quietly, her face expressionless. You know, she'd just be right on it. <laughs> so she very, when, very focused. Yeah, and when they would deliver a message to you from Hubbard, were you required to respond verbally or you were required to type type or write something? No, we just responded verbally. That's oh, all okay. the response we had. I don't know whether anybody else wrote the message down or our response, but any time a messenger came up to me um, in those years, um, up to the time we went ashore, the messenger, messenger came with a verbal message I responded verbally okay. and the messenger left. Okay, interesting. So, and what were the types, like, do you have, can you think of some examples? I'm just curious, like, what types of messages was Hubbard sending you? Um, let's see. Oh, my goodness, there were so many. Yes, um, just an example. I was just yeah, curious. Um, your, for example, in Daytona, your GI is lagging. Get your on gross, the gross income. Gross income. Your gross income statistic, production statistic for the week is lagging. It's down. Get on the ball and get it up. Interesting. <laughs> that could be one of them. And I'd go, oh, shit, okay. <laughs> I'd jump into gear and I always showed it to Tony, my superior. Well, actually, that implies that I had a written message. Well, some written messages did come down, but the verbal, I always went to Tony Dunleavy and let him know what message I had received as well. Okay. Um, another message I received was, Hannah, you are going to need more auditors. Um, uh, you're going to need more auditors, which we were already dealing with. We needed more immediately. Um, I don't remember what else there was to the message. Okay. Another message was something like, um, um, your handling of AOs. This would, would have been when I was, um, uh, let's see, I'm trying not to get my things mixed up here. Um, oh, that's okay. Yeah. In AVU, your handling of AO St. Hill, DK, Denmark, the, the advanced organization and St. Hill in Denmark was well done. Some of those were nice. I treasured those because yes. there weren't that many of those. <laughs> okay. What was AVU? Authority and Verification Unit. Okay, which was later moved to it Religious was, Technology Center. That was the early beginnings. That was the beginning of it in wow. which we became on the ship responsible for making sure that every order that left the ship to go to a Scientology organization or satellite of some kind was on policy, complied with all LRH policy and all his issued orders. Mm. 
So, Interesting. That's a challenge since a lot of the policies contradict each other. Right. <laughs> huge challenge. I even found myself going down to Mimeo at times. The huge department down below in one of the holds in Mimeo was where all LRH's orders were copied and distributed. And I had to go to the files which held excess copies and hunt for his previous issued technical bulletins to see how they compared with a new one that was being proposed in the present Wow! to be sure that it was correct. Yeah. So paper days, no, no internet searching computers, all of that back then. (laughs) All hard footwork and handwork and brain work. Yes. Yes. Interesting. And did you have any other interactions with Shelley during those years that you remember particularly? Um, maybe a few. Okay. I think, I think she, um, she actually, this was when I was before AVU. I don't remember her so much when we were in AVU later on, but I remember earlier. Um, she came around with once with Janice on a messenger run. Uh, I don't remember what it had to do with. It had to do with the engine room. Okay. And why it came to me, I think, was because of personnel. And LRH wanted, if I remember correctly, LRH wanted to know why somebody had been removed from the engine room. And I knew nothing about it. I mean, I said, I'll find out for you, sir. And I got on my feet and I raced down to find out from the chief engineer what had happened, where the person had gone and gone and traced it back to some illegal move that had been done by someone else, either in in that division, the engineering division on board, or even another division. But I found all the information and sent it up to LRH. Okay. She and was, of course... And of course, by illegal, you don't mean literally illegal, but against policy, against Hubbard's policy, right? I'm sorry. No, no, you're good. You're good. I'm just, I just want to make sure we're clear for anyone, you know, I mean, we can get deep in the weeds on language real quick, as you very well know. (laughs) Illegal only as far as Hubbard's policies on board. For example, you know, somebody may have been posted in given a job in the engine room to maintain the generators. There were four of them on the Apollo, on the Royal Scotman. And so that could have been considered at one point, I think it was, a full-time job. Every time a generator went offline, it was given a maintenance, complete maintenance. Everything was cleaned, rescheduled, and so forth. And um, if somebody moved illegally, that person off that maintenance line, it would have been illegal per Hubbard policies. So that was how I meant it. Yes, no, absolutely. Makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Awesome. And uh, and and so one other question. Yes. So there were all these miners, minor messengers, and I understand they had guardians aboard the ship. Were they ever afforded the opportunity to visit their actual families? Um, as far as I know, no, they weren't. Not often, Claire. Yeah. But, but none of us were. It, it was, 
And for them as well, even though they had privileged positions mm-hmm. as LRH messengers, and they were very privileged positions, um, everybody had to completely respect them, give them no flack, no resistance, be courteous to them and so forth. Um, I don't remember. Interesting. I don't remember them being on on leaves of absence. Besides, one had to petition for a leave of absence with a very good reason. Wow. And it had to go all the way from wherever it originated in, you know, the lower portions of the of the ship all the way up through various senior positions up to maybe myself as CS1 or one of the other aides or even to LRH for permission to leave for a certain length of time. Wow. <laughs> so so for for a messenger, they probably most likely would absolutely have to have approval from Hubbard, you think? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Because they'd be off the messenger roster and, right. and, and they would have to be replaced so that that roster position was not left vacant. Interesting. Wow. So no, not even for Christmas or, you know, the things that people would normally think, well, of course you spend Thanksgiving, Christmas with your family. None of that. No, the Sea Org, um, the Sea Org purpose was took precedence over anything else, including family ashore including commitments ashore, including birthdays, including that took precedence. And we we knew that when we signed the CEO contract. And I right. presume that most anybody who signed the CEO contract knew that as well. Yeah. And, um, though though it's hard I think it's hard for uh for example, Shelley was twelve when she joined the C organization. It's hard, I think, for any twelve year old to envision what that really means. I mean, they're not even adult. Their brain's not even fully formed, of course. Right, right. Yeah. I think that's why, that's why, Claire, it, I'm putting my, the, myself back into the mindset of those young people. And that's why they looked so startled mm-hmm. when they were first on the ship and introduced to being messengers, because they did. Um, as time went by, they became more settled. But to begin with, they looked sort of startled with everything, you know, yeah. for them to get into it. it yeah. It's and like, there was probably a, you know, a mystical aspect like, oh, we're going to the ship to be with the founder of Scientology. But, uh, you know, as a minor, the reality of that away from far, far away from your family, did their families, were their families even allowed to know where they were physically? No, I don't know. Okay. I have no idea. I think um, Hubbard may have made an exception with his messengers, okay. um, but I don't know. I never went into it with any of them. So. Yeah, that, no, that's interesting. I'll, I'll make a note of that, and I'll. I, and, I'm doing a, another follow-up episode with Janice. I'll, I'll make sure to ask her about that wonderful. too. Yes, yeah. she will know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's interesting. Yeah. And did you have any other any other thoughts or impressions from those years of either Shelley or her sister Clarice? Mm. Any other thoughts or experiences you'd like to share? Mm, let me see. Um, I 
And and just for context too. So according to my my notes and talking with Janice and so forth, I um, have that Shelley would have come on board the Apollo in. 1973 when she was 12 years old um and so you were mentioning that 1975 is you is when you went ashore so you knew of shelly for that right almost two years three two two and a half to three years yes okay yes yes um i don't know why uh Maybe because of the position I was in, Janice and Terry came to me more than the other messengers. And I don't know if that was on purpose or not. I don't believe I ever, I spoke to Clarice more than I spoke to Shelley that I can remember. Um, And once or twice, I remember even joking with Clarice about something and we were laughing. Something about cleaning up the dorms. The, the 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 crew that were the workmen of the ship they they slept in dorms below deck and and sometimes the messengers were sent to inspect the dorms and to make sure that the dorm um, occupants cleaned them up because you know often they were left just in a mess yes and um, I remember Clarice one time chuckling with me she said oh god it was terrible even the, the smell down there is you know we have to disinfect and <laughs> the oh, whole wow. thing. and once Shelley was with her and we all laughed about it we joked and laughed about it but not much I don't remember much more than that okay and there was were there ever any social activities where like all the people including the messengers hung out or whatever you do on a ship (laughs) yes especially Christmas Christmas celebrations and New Year's Um, the guardrails came down and the uh, messengers very often mixed with some of the deckhands hmm. and the other crew and they'd have um, parties sort of smaller parties around the large party in the main dining room where the big festivities went on for christmas and new years okay. and they would we would sort of watch them that they weren't drinking too much and, you know this kind of thing but they were always well behaved always I think Mary Sue had to put her foot down a few times, but it, it was never anything. It was any, never anything too too much. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. And so, so that was, and 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 so you said that when you went ashore, you didn't have much more interactions with Shelley specifically. No, not really. Um, except I mentioned I saw her at the. Um, Neptune Hotel, where we, where we had the flag service organization temporarily set up to deliver training and auditing. Yes. And um, I saw Shelley, she came around a few times with LRH. Clarice was there. Um, Terry and Janice were there. And David, I forget David's last name. David, another messenger. And they were all around LRH and sort of peering around and looking. I didn't know if they were, if Hubbard had had asked them to snoop, to look around and check on this and check on that, make sure this was done or that was done. I got the idea that he had, but I didn't say anything. <laughs> and um, because he came around from time to time and, and 
walked through the organization with us and so on. So and, I, yeah, and sorry, um, just for anyone listening, the David was very definitely not David Miscavige. No, oh, yes. no, 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 no. Yeah, this, I'm just, yeah, I know, yeah. I, I know that. I'm just stating the, the so well, it's expressed between us. <laughs> well done for catching that, Claire. Yes, no, it wasn't David Miscavige. It was a, a young, quite sweet guy, dark-haired, good-looking, um, very happy, very happy young man. He was... I don't know, early teens, 11, 12, early teens. Um, and he was a messenger. Okay. Very seriously. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Any other experiences with Shelley after coming ashore that you would like to share? No, I don't think I had any at all. When we um, moved from the Neptune to Clearwater, um, the messengers remained with LRH. They were, again, in another location in Clearwater, and we didn't see them often. Okay. Um, Tony, Dunleavy, and Gwen North and I, still the executives in the Flag Service Organization, moved into the Fort Harrison building okay. and worked there. And Hubbard would come occasionally with several messengers but there he usually he either, he sometimes he came into our organization usually it was into um, other organizations in the area of our organizations like the flag um, ship organization still called the flag ship organization but it looked after the hotel the cleanliness the meals um, the birthing spaces of all the people who were there. So it was more like a household organization. He okay. more often went to see them and also the guardian's office, which was located elsewhere in Clearwater. Okay. Awesome. And then, so now we're going to fast forward. So what, what year did you manage to get out of all this mess? Oh, goodness. 19... 82, finally. Okay. I, I went to the RPF in 1978 or 79, 78, because I had had a rock slam, which in Scientology means I had a sinned very badly. I had an evil, I did something evil against someone. Yes. And, and and for anyone listening that doesn't know what a rock slam is, because that sounds alarming, that's that, of course, you're referring to as the phenomena on the e-meter, the lie detector in Scientology, where the needle slashes back and forth erratically and indicates that the person has evil purposes against Scientology. That's fair to say? Right. Absolutely perfect. And that rapid movement of the needle is so fast that I can't follow it. And that is, um, there's a, there's more definition to it, but it, there's no need for us to go into it. Yes. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. That That's a conversation for another day. And of course, we'll, we'll cover the rest of your story. We're just fast forwarding for this episode, because after you were no longer in Scientology, it's my understanding, and I'd love to hear the, the story of this that you knew and had interactions with Flo Barnett, who is, of course, was Shelley's mother. Shelley's mother, Clarissa's mother. That's correct. 
Okay. I never met Flo on the ship. I I don't believe I knew about her on the ship. Yeah, um, that makes sense because she was in L.A. Yeah. To my knowledge, she was never on the ship. No, I don't ever remember her being there. Um, but after I got out of Scientology, which was in March of 1982, okay. I stayed in Los Angeles for a few years, um, met my husband in 1984. We got married in December of 85. And after that, we set up a little auditing business because so many people were leaving Scientology and wanting to get more auditing and training. Okay. They still, they still believed in Hubbard's technology. Okay. And because so many were coming out, existing auditors who had already left couldn't cope. So Jerry and I said, okay, let's start helping some of these people. And we started doing so. And pretty soon we were auditing and training from morning until night. We were very busy. And it was in 19, must have been towards the end of 19, 1985, 84, somewhere in there, 83, somewhere in that period. I don't have it done exactly okay. that I remember that I received a call one day from Flo out of the blue. And she said she was speaking in a very rapid voice. Um, and I immediately knew she was in trouble. She said, look, I need auditing. I need it urgently. And she broke down in tears. And she said that David Mayo can't help me. David Mayo had already set up his little organization up in Santa Barbara to help people who left Scientology to okay. help them. And, and sorry, just to fill in for context. So David Mayo used to be one of the top um, profession, top executives in Scientology. And yes. he even actually wrote um, some of the, the, the uh, counseling procedures. Right, the, the, the upper level counseling yes. procedures. Yeah, and, and isn't it true that he also extensively audited Hubbard himself? He did. And in... In his training, David was trained by LRH to become okay. one of the best auditors. Okay. And so he had now left and was had opened a practice where people could still right. get Scientology counseling and training, but right. outside of the outside organization of, of Scientology. Right. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and just a side comment, it's kind of interesting to me that that seems to be a common theme, at least in Scientology, where a first step for somebody is to leave the organization, but they still right. want to subscribe or believe in the beliefs or use the, the counseling or the, the training. The techniques, the auditing techniques yeah. that Hubbard developed. They wanted that. They'd had success with it in Scientology and they wanted more. Okay. That was never my path. I, but... But I, I've just seen it a lot where, you know, and but it always seems to be just a first stepping stone, at least again, in my experience. I'm, and I'm curious to get your comment Claire, to then it shed it completely. That wasn't my experience either. I left okay. the, the technical, but I left the technical and the management policy. I left everything. 
But then when we saw how many people, I did not want to do anything more with auditing, but when we saw how many people wanted the auditing, we said, we've got to help. And I went, okay. And I put on my auditor persona again, and I went at it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So, so you were telling me about your first, this first, and was this the first time you had personally talked with Flo? Yeah. I didn't, okay. know, her. I didn't know her before. Okay. Um, she came across to me as very anxious, very frightened, very scared of what was happening with her. And the little bits she gave me in the phone call told me that she had experienced something very good early on in Scientology. Okay. And she had never, no one had ever been able to tell her what that was. Hmm. She had received a lot of help around it and wanted to have it acknowledged that she had received some sort of state, some sort of state of awareness that she wanted to have acknowledged. It was almost like somebody, you know, let's say in the real world, somebody a swimmer who swims in uh, in a competition and comes out as having broken the world record they stand up and they're acknowledged and they're acclaimed for their ability and they're happy with that yes but in scientology there were all sorts of states hubbard mentioned one could attain and you could state what it was and be acknowledged for it and even receive a certificate for it but in Claire's, in Flo's case, she said nobody would acknowledge what she said she had achieved. Nobody would do anything. I said, well, Claire, uh, I'm sorry, Flo. No, you're good. Yeah. I can't promise you that I will be able to give you what you want, but we can certainly try. Let's try. Okay. And what was the fear that she was talking about? She was, she felt that she was going crazy. Okay. She felt she was drowning. Um, this, w- this would be psychologically, mentally, maybe emotion. There had to be emotions. She didn't mention emotionally, but there were emotions flooding through what she was saying. Okay. That um, the spirits of people who had died long ago, had, were still she was still involved in them and they were they were overwhelming her she couldn't get rid of them and she had at one point and they were coming back after her and she couldn't get rid of them and she needed help desperately she was panicked oh boy that was that was sort of the gist of it okay and do you know how far up up how far she'd gotten in terms of the Scientology levels? Yes, yeah, she'd gone to what was the top at the time, which was OT7. Wow, okay. She'd gone all the way through, and I was blown away that she was had, been, had gone through apparently well enough for her to be happy with her completion at each level. Yeah. And yet at the end, she was so distraught. Um, I scheduled her for one session and she phoned and couldn't attend. And then 
She phoned again before the second session and she said, Hannah, I'm desperate. I have to have some help. I said, Flo, can you come in today? She said, no, I can't. I've got no transport. I'm waiting for my car to get back. Somebody's got my car. She was crying. She was just crying. And I thought, maybe I can get to her. But I don't remember what was going on. I couldn't get to her. Yeah. And um, then I didn't hear from her again. Um, Jerry and I talked about it. I even talked to Gwen, uh, to Judy Theory, who you, I used to consult with. She was class 12 auditor. She okay. was living up the coast from me in Santa Barbara, and I used to consult with her. She was one of the few um, class 12s who I knew where she was, and we had a good connection, and I would often talk to her about this person's auditing or that. Could I improve this? Could I do something better here? She was wonderful. And I even talked to Judy Ferry. We got together over it, and she agreed with how I was going to approach Flow with what we were going to do together. Mm -hmm. But then came that last phone call from Flow, and uh, she was panicked, and I could not think of a way to get her. And then a day or two later, we heard. I don't remember how I heard. Yeah, and and sorry, we have to be careful what what words we use on this platform. Um, Okay. okay, just making sure you know that <laughs> because um, I know what's coming, but go ahead. Yeah, we heard that um, she had passed and um, that um, somebody, I think one of her daughters or a friend had found her. Oh, dear. And um, I, I was given all the details of it and I was terribly distraught. Yeah, I can imagine. And then... And, and then, you know, people, other people were calling and phoning and we were sharing information and, and then came the news. It got somehow into the news and, and, and the story of what happened with Flo got changed and turned around and it was, it apparently was misrepresented um, in the newspapers and it was... I don't know how much I can go into. Claire. Yeah. Well, so um, in so in the final, I guess in the coroner's report, it was ruled that she had unalived herself. We'll just put it that way. But right. but the 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 um, the, the circumstances suspicion. surrounding it were very very suspicious. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And yet, um, and yet, flow. Um, had mentioned, and again, I don't know if I should even go into this, she had mentioned when she called in her various talks that she felt like doing away with her own life, that it might be better I see. if she went and she wasn't giving people all this trouble because it was like a lot of trouble and it might be easier for her to end her life and then um, handle whatever she, or resolve whatever she wanted to Without, because she believed Hubbard's beliefs that um, once this body is gone, we are a spirit, 
that is aware and cognizant and can communicate and she could resolve issues her issues in that way oh such a tragedy but but she's also said to me but hannah i don't want to do it It, i need to fix it here yes i can do that but i'd rather fix it here and that was when i said well we'll flow let's see what we can do yeah see because i'm not tied down completely to doing things the way the church did right and and so and again for context at this point it's my understanding that shelly flo's daughter was already married to david miscavige absolutely yeah he was not yet the head person in charge that was still five or so years off but nonetheless they were both senior executives is that correct from your recollection that's correct and flo talked about it thank you for bringing it up and yeah brought the memory back and flo mentioned that shelly her daughter was very distraught with flo and what flo was doing and that flo wasn't following orders from the church on how to resolve what was going on with her yeah and Flo told me, but Hannah, I've tried and it didn't work. Every time I tried, it didn't work. Every time somebody from the church tried, it didn't work. That's why I'm coming outside the church. And then she said, but then Shelley gets mad at me because mm. it's going to affect her husband, David's position in the church. I can't be connected to David if you're outside the church and you're declared suppressive. And she said, and she was caught in this turmoil between trying to please her daughter and spare her daughter from being in bad with the head of the Church of Scientology. Yes. And and losing her children and then or herself being declared and losing her children. It was a terrible that was part of the dilemma that was going on. Apart from the other thing, which Flo wanted to mention, which was this this thing to do with herself, the state of awareness that she felt she had reached. I see. It, it was a mess. Yeah, and and of course, at that by that time, Shelley was in her early twenties. Um, did yeah. you ever hear? I'm curious. I've read somewhere that at one point. Shelley had actually offered to divorce David Miscavige because right. of the situation with Flo. What what recollections yes, do you have about that did. piece? Flo mentioned that as well as part okay. of Flo knew about it, and um, she said that uh, that her daughter had offered to do this, and she's and I don't remember what Flo's. It, it was everything. Everything clashed with everything that Flo was saying. Um, and Flo, I think she said something along the lines of, I can't live with a daughter who's given up that position in Scientology. She considered that an overt of magnitude. She said, that would be a sin far worse than me leaving Scientology. Wow. Um, she couldn't see it. She couldn't, she couldn't do it. Wow. And of course, it, keep remembering. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's very helpful. I appreciate it. And it's such a to me, it's such a tragedy that it's so baked into Scientology that if somebody leaves then and seeks help elsewhere, 
then the family members remaining are essentially now labeled as a potential source of trouble and they they have to go through all different handlings even though just just because like in the case of Shelley that must have been the case um because that's what Hubbard policies and tech you know the processes and counseling that's that's right. what's built in right yes including as a final resolution disconnecting from yeah. loved ones yes and um it, it was it, it was it was just and yet um Flo said that you know she, she couldn't she couldn't do that to her daughter right she couldn't have her daughter divorce her husband for her she couldn't see that she couldn't go through with that and she also didn't nor, nor should she have had to I mean, of course, that's that's presuming that the policies of Scientology aren't what they are. Yes. But that's that's just a terrible choice. It's the quicksands that people are put into where, you know, even if you put another foot down to help yourself out of the bog, that one sinks. And then you can manage to get one foot up and you try to get out and that foot sinks. There's no way out of the mess yeah that's a that's a great example another example i i often use is like getting caught in the spider's web and the more you struggle to try and get out the tighter (laughs) the more you're twisted in it yeah yes it was it was shocking um so is it fair to say from your experience just setting aside the agreeably uh the the very suspicious circumstances of those events regarding flow, um, the tragedy that she was suffering through was 100% Scientology. No doubt in my mind. Okay. Absolutely no doubt because flow mentioned as the source of the problem, the source of the difficulty she was experiencing being Hubbard's um, OT3, OT4, 5, 6, 7 levels, those levels in, I don't even want to go into it particularly, that mentioned um, being, having other invisible spirits do things to you that you don't want done to yourself. Being, being, um, Being at the effect of other invisible spirits. And she felt she was that way. And that came from Hubbard's techniques. Right. So it was totally tied in. And the awareness that she wanted to have acknowledged, which was also part of Hubbard's techniques, it all came from that. Yeah. No doubt in my mind. And everything, including the way she felt, the way she wanted to end it, if she had, um, also came from that. It was all tied into it. Yeah. Were you aware if she was also having any financial difficulties? Oh, yes. She said that when, thank you again. (laughs) No, you're good. (laughs) That's why this was such an important conversation to me because I, I just really, you know, I really, I don't know much about Flo. I don't think I've ever Mm. actually talked with somebody before who knew her personally. So this, Mm. anyway, thank you again. She she was a small woman. She was a live wire. She was very articulate. But in in those talks I had with her, she didn't ramble, but she was frantic. 
Mm. She was right on topic, but she was frantic. Interesting. She had to have help now because she, it was overwhelming her. She couldn't do it anymore. That's the kind of thing. But back to, back to her financial situation. When she first went to David Mayo's group in Santa Barbara, um, David couldn't take her on because she couldn't pay. I see. She didn't have the money. And she said, I asked around, I asked to borrow, but I couldn't go to my kids because um, Shelley was in Scientology. She said <laughs> she couldn't have helped me. And I didn't have other resources. Oh, boy. So she said, Hannah, I thought, well, Jerry and I told her, look, Flo, don't, don't worry about the money. Let's drop that. I mean, you just come over. Let's see what we can do. Just drop Drop that issue completely. I mean, for God's sake, who, if you're frantic, who, if you're frantic, would you, would you say, no, you've got to give me, you know, 50 bucks, 100 bucks, whatever it is, you know? Right. And the person says, I can't, I don't have it. I'll come on inside, pick up the cans. Right. Yeah. yeah. And by this point, I mean, um, Flo had gotten into Scientology, I think, in 1965. Same so, year I did. That's right. Yes. So she'd been in Scientology almost 20 years. Right. And when she got in, um, she and her husband, Barney, had successful a successful business, a nice house. And it's my understanding they lost everything. Again, another facet right. of the tragedy of Scientology and this story um but yeah i was curious of your your conversations with flo on that that aspect didn't go much into it because of her current situation that she was panicking but yeah. she did mention that um coming into scientology they had done well they were doing well yeah um they had all the money and then it I don't think she mentioned much about how it, all, of, all their money went into Scientology. Basically, it's the same story that one heard over and over again from Scientologists. Everything we had was put into Scientology. Right. He said, and now we have nothing and we need help. Yeah. And David couldn't help her. And, yeah. So. And how sad is it? I mean, that she had no one to even ask, no one to go to. Um, this was... To me, anyway, from, from where I sit, it sounds like this was entirely brought on by these pressure points completely revolving around her family, her daughter. Um, the, her it doesn't, like, doesn't sound like Shelley treated her very well in this instance. No, it didn't. And I was, I was, I was perturbed by that. Mm -hmm. But I said nothing to Flo. I wasn't going to add to what she already felt about it. I yeah. said, I left it quiet. Yeah. Though I will comment again from my own personal experiences, there's no question in my mind that Shelley was under incredible pressure oh. to fix this, um, oh. not only by David Miscavige, who was her husband, right. but also by, I'm sure, her um, executives who she was working with, maybe even Hubbard himself. Yeah, I, I'm not sure where he was. Uh, you know, I don't have the exact dates in front of me, but yeah. as you know, given that Shelley had worked with him right. for a long time by that point, it would not surprise me one bit. Right. Me, me neither. Yeah. Um, it was Jerry and I were 
we we were you know we were sort of bowled over by what was happening but claire at that time we had a few other people we were helping him who were in the same situation as Flo. Yeah. And what made it even worse was that it was just the, the, the situation was like it was right here in front of us, you know. The neglect, the, if, if Scient uh, the Scientology training made Scientologists believe that if you didn't get the end result of a process or a technique, as Hubbard described the end result, and if nothing worked on it and you still didn't get it and you worsened and you started to complain and you made trouble and so on, you were a suppressive person. You were right. bad. There was no... There was no way, no thorough way. Yes, there were ways to deal with it, but there was no way to make sure that, you know, the real basic cause was found. And if it was, it, and if it was found, it became the Scientologist's fault because yes. Scientologists had done something similar to another in his past. Yeah. So the blame for what the Scientologist was going through was put back on the Scientologist. Yes. And that was the mo that was the worst thing of all that we were dealing with. It totally makes sense. And with Flo, she was left with that. But Hannah, you know, that I'm the one who is causing this. I'm the one who is doing wrong here. I'm the one who is and we kept trying to say no flow. Right. <laughs> no flow, please come. <laughs> please come. Oh, was, what a tragedy. It was too little too late. It yeah. It's too little too late. I wish you'd come to us earlier. Yeah, no, absolutely. By the way, did you know Paulette Cohen? Oh, very well. Oh. <laughs> Paulette Fisher. Paulette, yeah. Paulette. Yeah, so she is somebody that really helped me. Really? Um, yeah, because I, having having grown up, you know, from birth to age 30. Very different. Oh, that's amazing. She is a, oh, that's awesome. No, she is a lovely person. We send her Christmas cards. Uh, but I, I met her, I was actually emailing with her. And she, for people listening, she was a long-term Scientologist. And I think uh, definitely a member of the C organization. And she audited oh, Hubbard yes. as well, right? Audited Hubbard as well. Yeah. It didn't last too long, but she did, yes. Yeah, but yeah. she helped me um, come to grips with kind of my struggle of mentally what I was going through. I was uh, obviously very fearful, and I couldn't understand, like, why was Mark able to just uh, walk out and just be like, all right, good, I'm done. And it's not that I, I didn't, I, I believed or anything. I was just so struggling mentally with all the labels and what does this mean? And that's what made me think of it when you were talking about that you blame yourself, like, oh, I just must be a bad person. And Paulette, I can't remember exactly what she said, but she just kind of very gently pointed out to me, did it ever occur to you that perhaps part of the struggle is because you're in this mental turmoil that was brought on by the fact that you were, had done the upper levels because I I was in the middle of operating Thetan level five. Really? Um, yeah. 
<laughs> and yes. she really, she really just helped me with that. And it, Fantastic. because you know, you're, you, it is like mental gymnastics yeah. of an extreme yes. nature and no one's ever studied what impact that has on a person. Right. Yes. <laughs> and, and I've likened it to a maze without an ending. And all along the way, there are bobbed spears and wires and so on that are triggered to come out of the hedges to attack you if you put your foot wrong. And you never know if you're putting your foot wrong and you're searching for the end, but there's no end. (laughs) Yeah. It becomes a torture chamber. You know, it actually becomes uh, uh, a a torturous trail. Um, Yes. And the more you try to resolve it with Scientology, the worse it gets. Right. Scientology can't resolve it. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Well, um, on a final note, I have one last question for you. Yes. And then I will, of course, very much look forward to our next installment. I'm learning so much and I'm so grateful for your time. You're um, very welcome, Claire. I'm. <laughs> thank you for asking me. Thank you for reaching out. And I'm so glad to be able to do this. That's amazing. All right. So here's my last question for you. If you could talk to Shelly today, what would you say? Oh, wow. It would depend, of course, on what Shelly was doing at the time I was talking to her. If she was, you know, refusing to talk to me completely, um, I would just become my gentlest self that I could. Um, and I would probably say to her, Shelley, um, you asked why on earth, you, you know, you, I had somebody said, somebody called me to come and talk to you um, because you know there's nothing wrong with Scientology. And I'd just say to her, well, why? Would that someone have asked me to come to talk to you if there was nothing wrong with it? Yeah. Just very quietly and maybe saying, all I'm asking for is just a moment of your time. I promise I'm not going to hurt you. I'm not going to try to change your mind. Nothing, you know. And just along that line, try to set up a teeny point of trust, just Mm -hmm. a tiny one that we could gradually expand on. And sometimes it goes easily and sometimes it doesn't. So you just have to work on it a bit more. Yes. Now, in the situation, if Shelley came to me and she was saying, oh, wow, um, I didn't know that somebody was going to ask you to talk to me or that I was going to run into you or something. Well, I said, these things happen. And of course, um, why did you think this was happening? I just want to find out what she's thinking. Yeah. And she might say something along the lines of, well, of course, it's got to go back to Scientology. But again, she's not resisting me. You know, so I'd say to her, well, if that's what you're feeling, is, is there something more to it that you feel deserves to be addressed. Mm-hmm. I would try to find, get a niche, try to find an opening to get into. And if I couldn't find, if she gave me the opening, I would take it. If she couldn't give me an opening, then I would say, well, there are some 
I feel very interesting things that one could look at. Yes. Um, and just open it that way. Just, but be very laid back, friendly, non-confrontative. Yeah. Just be very laid back. Yeah. Because which which takes down barriers versus putting them up. Absolutely, because any resistance, anything like that, raises up that barrier of no. Yes. I will not talk to you. And once you've got that raised, it's hard to, yeah. <laughs> to bring it back down again. It can yeah, be I, for a Scientologist, I kind of like liken that to almost even uh, a soundproof chamber. Like, yeah, right. They, they just shut down and stop receiving input whatsoever. And you're almost at that point, if you run into that, yeah. you may as well be not even be a human, right? Is that your experience? Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. Early on, when Jerry and I were working it out, how to approach a Scientologist, we got into it a few times. And in two, in two of those, we managed to get out of it, but it took a few days. It took a little bit of work to get out of it, and we can go into that later. Yes, I'd love to. <laughs> yeah. So, and there are various other ways. So, if for for example, those are two main ways I can think of what how I would talk to Shelley. Yeah. And of course, if she was interested in talking to me, it's the, the roadway is open. You know, the, the communication is open. You can sort of bring it up and say, "Well, is there anything you're interested in?" Yes. You know, is there anything you've noticed, for example? Because yes. I noticed myself, but what about you? It might be something different that you're interested in. And some people come back and say, well, no, I'm really interested in what got you. And I say, oh, really? Okay, in that case, let's do, let's do such and such. Yes. But always, always very watchful, aware of and watchful for what the person is giving you because you have to follow on that. Always try to follow on what the person is giving you because then yeah. you're then you're aligned with that person's mind you're following that person yeah that so Shelly I mean Shelly if there's if there's ever a chance and who knows there might be um I would love to talk to you I would not hurt you um I would do everything in my power to make you feel unhurt if you were hurting and um to bring about a resolution for you where you are happy again. Awesome. Yeah. Beautiful, Hannah. Thank you so very much for your time um, on this episode. And <laughs> I love you. And we will schedule love our you. next episode of your story, which is we've just started unfolding at this point. So <laughs> anyway, yeah. love you too. Awesome. Well, thank you. We'll talk soon. And until next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye, dear.